Today, I sit down with Zipper on Disney. We discuss his new book, Galder's Gazetteer, as well as homebrewing your own content for Dungeons and Dragons, and a little bit of discussion around D&D 6th edition and whether or not it's something that we need right now. All that today on Roll for Insight. All right, so welcome everyone to another episode of Roll for Insight. I'm joined by Zapirian Disney. Uh, thank you for coming on. How has your day been going? Uh, my day is lovely. It's a beautiful sunny day here in wonderful Columbus, Ohio. Awesome. It's a little bit too sunny where I'm at, but that is neither here nor there. So let's just get right into it. You have recently released a new homebrew volume named Galder's Gazetteer. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the experience is like? A lot of DMs do not publish their content, the vast majority of them. So like, what is it like putting that kind of content out on the internet? Uh, so Galder's Gazetteer is a major expansion for 5th edition. It uh, expands the game by adding new actions, new conditions, and new martial options. And then not just uh, like those core uh, expansions to the rules, but also subclasses, races that use them, a GM options that incorporate them, and a couple of adventures too. It's this massive 192-page uh, book, number one seller on drive-thru RPG. Yeah, I saw that. Congratulations are in order, by the way. Well-deserved. I have read the book. It's pretty good. You guys should go grab it. I'll have a link somewhere in the description. <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. And it was a, uh, a huge project. It, uh, we raised $20,000 on Kickstarter and it took me about a year and a half to, uh, to put together. It involved uh, whew, about maybe like seven or eight uh, game designers and other authors. And then, you know, dozens of artists and other people all working together to produce this book. And so my role is I'm sort of at the, the top here. It's my job to sort of use those resources and manage all this talent and make sure that they're working together uh, to make a, a beautiful product. And that's, that's what we did. Yeah. So when you're trying to, when you are managing and you're revising the homebrew that you see, what do you look for, whether it's good or bad? Like what are hooks that you kind of look for in a homebrew that make you think, okay, this is going to work or this isn't going to work? That's a, uh, that, that's a great question because the way this book was uh, funded on Kickstarter is it's uh, in remembrance of a young man named Lawrence who sadly died of cancer at a young age. And so this book is uh, about his character, Galder, uh, traveling to all of these different worlds and sort of a way for uh, that, uh, that guy's memory to live on. And so how we funded this was people who backed the Kickstarter had the option of submitting their content from their homebrew world into the game. So I got a lot of people's homebrew that was submitted as here's an idea. I want this in the book somehow. And so when we got these content from our submitters, it was in various forms. It was either like, you know, really fleshed out design that they've been playing for years and years and years. And other times it was just an idea. So we had a, uh, a lot to work for. And so what I did was we went, when I hired uh, writers and game designers to turn that submitted content into a polished product to, you know, put out and give the people on drive-thru RPG, I gave them this document right here, which is shared on screen. And it is a, uh, like sort of a four-step design process. And so when these people got this idea, like, oh, I want a pyromancer wizard, or I want, uh, you know, vampires, or I want a type of shadow people, uh, these are the things I said, okay, look for these four elements when you're doing your passes. And if you need to rip something out and change it, as long as you keep that person's core idea, you have a uh, freedom to express it however you want. Number one is uh, the story, right? 
what is the best possible story the, the whatever proposed game that I can tell uh because you have to understand that we're not just making a collection of game mechanics right uh Role-playing games are not that. Role-playing games are a way to create a fiction. They're a way to create a narrative. And so whenever you're making something for the game, it has to have a place to reside in that fiction. Uh, being really focused on what narrative fulfillment you're going to try to achieve with this particular game element is the, the most crucial thing, right? Like uh, mechanics are a, you know really cheap to make. You can make lots of different ones. Even if they're really, really innovative and cool, there are lots of different systems that can use them. A million different dice games you can play. But having a cool story is something that's really going to get that player and that... Uh, that that GM excited and invested in the game. It's the most important element in my opinion. So when you're right. just looking through ideas for homebrew, like the first thing you hook onto is a story-based kind of uh, setup so that you can build out the mechanics from there. Yes, exactly. You want to you want to tell a story uh, through the through the game mechanics, which is exactly this uh the second point right here, which is ludo narrative harmony. Uh, ludo narrative harmony is sort of a an old school term right now. It's probably kind of falling out of favor, but it's basically this idea that uh, your me game mechanics, your uh, the the work of the the game and the math needs to reflect the story that you're trying to tell. Like, uh, you know, the the Batman Arkham City games for PlayStation. Yep. You can sort of uh, go through. And you can sort of beat up the criminals. And you can pick up their pipes and you can beat them back if you know they throw a knife at you. You can de deflect the knife and they have a gun. They can shoot the gun. But Batman is never allowed to pick up the gun. And shoot it back at the criminals because that's not what Batman does. Doing that would break Ludo narrative harmony. And so, when we're writing stories for this game, we have to make sure that whatever game mechanics you you have in there are reinforcing the story that you're trying to tell. Right. So, when you're looking for what what do you kind of feel is a big mistake that people make when they're trying to have their story, their mechanics reflect the story? Because that sometimes can be really hard for some people to grasp, especially in the heat of a D&D game, like when they're dungeon when they're dungeon mastering, excuse me. So when you're kind of looking through, hey, how does your story or how does your mechanics reflect your story or vice versa? Like, do you find that people often make mistakes? And if so, what are those mistakes and how do you avoid them? I think the, the biggest mistake is folks get hung up on a particular mechanic, right? Like they want something to, to work and they keep trying to force it in there, right? Well, not realizing that uh, that whatever XYZ mechanic is not really helping them along. Uh, I think a good example of this would be, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of something here. Oh, here we go. We have this idea. I don't know if Matt Colville recently released a video last week talking about trying to make guns for D&D. &D. Oh, yeah. And he was obsessed with the idea that having a D6 would be like a good six shooter, right? And he kept trying to, to make that work. And then it never, whatever mechanic he came up with never reinforced the, the story of the, the six shooter gun that he wanted. Or let's say we have uh, Jedis and lightsabers, right? That uh, you can't have a mechanic that encourages your light side character to use force lightning, right? If right. force lightning is always the best way for them to win combat, uh, they're not going to feel like a Jedi warrior, right? They're always going to be acting suboptimally. Uh, and so they're going to be encouraged to do something that's not in the, the story that they're trying to tell. Or if Jedi somehow got uh, bonus powers for using more fighting and less thinking, then that would disrupt the story that they're trying to tell. So balance is a big part of it. Like you don't want a necromancer's most powerful option to be fireball rather than raising the undead. So you need to balance undead to be just as powerful as a fireball. Yes, that's 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 a great way of uh, that's a great way of putting it. That's exactly the reason why fireball does so much damage in fifth edition. Is because if suddenly they found out that stinking cloud was the most powerful spell, 
then all of a sudden uh, in D&D land, we understand that all the wizards be shooting around and giving farts to each other, right? Which is not what we imagine. We imagine wizards shooting fireballs and bolts of lightning, which is why they're the most powerful spells. Well, that's what some of us imagine. <laughs> I know some wizards that would disagree. Mm-hmm. But um, when you're thinking about balance, we're on the subject of balance and I've been kind of harping on this, but how do you feel about DMs balancing things before the game and even during the game? Hmm. Okay, so I think that's sort of a, a big question right there. If we're talking about DM-facing content, like trying to balance my monsters that I'm using in a fight, you can do that on the fly, no big deal. If you're trying to balance player items, I think once you give them to the players, uh, you shouldn't nerf it, right? Mm. The only way, once you give something to the player, the only way you can go is up. It's on you as the DM, if you give something too powerful, to, to make up that challenge yourself, right? Like, oh, okay, this player is getting really strong with their fire tongue sword. I gave them at level one. I guess we're going to have some fire resistant enemies now. Right. Because they're, they're doing way too much damage to making everyone else feel bad. So I have to do something else. It's more fun story-wise for players to unlock a weapon's new power than to have their weapon suddenly like, oh, it got struck by a thunderbolt and now it doesn't work, right? Like uh, one is a letdown for the player and one gives them excitement. Yeah. I also really like at some point in the campaign just letting loose, give the players items that, well, aren't crazy, crazy powerful so that there's still some challenge, but powerful enough that they feel like that kind of legendary hero just at the tail end. Have you ever, when you reach that point in your in your games, I mean, do you kind of encourage that sort of letting loose mentality when it comes to player character balance? Oh, so my personal home campaigns I run are very low magic. Uh, players have like maybe like one magic item that's like their signature thing. Uh, so things don't really uh, go out in that way. And I think even at the the, the higher levels, right? Like my last campaign ended uh, maybe like three months ago it was at level 15. And the, the characters knew that they were, you know, they were big in the world, but there were still like wider threats out there. They still felt very grounded. So I don't tend to go to extreme power levels, especially with, uh, with magic items. Interesting. So when you're running these low magic settings, do you have any advice for other dungeon masters that want to kind of embody that? Because, I mean, it's rather obvious that Dungeons and Dragons kind of favors the high magic. We have a lot mm -hmm. of high magic stuff in D&D. It is a, a high magic system a lot of the time. And running a low magic setting, a lot of people don't have as much resources for that. So do you have any advice for running lower magic settings? Okay. So I think some of it is just like how you construct your world, right? Like if you put magic shops everywhere, if you have lots of wizards everywhere, people are going to get the idea that it's high magic. So I just rip out all of that, right? Boom. Uh, there might be a wizard somewhere, but most of the most of the spellcasters are are priests. Um, you have to remember that magic weapon is a spell. A lot of DMs feel compelled to give their players uh, magic weapons because once you hit like sixth, seventh level, like most things you're going to be fighting have some sort of form, form of magic resistance or resistance to non-magical weapons. But D and D is a team game. The wizard has a spell that will imbue magic resistance. Or if you don't want to do that, if you feel like you're putting, putting an unnecessary tax on the wizard character, then you can just hand wave and say, well, silvered weapons count as magical for the purpose of overcoming that. And that sinks into the uh, the sort of lower magic setting. Like, okay, this weapon's not enchanted, but I know some ancient alchemical technique that will make it good against fighting uh, these mystic creatures. 
Interesting. So you want to rebalance the world in general just to fit the low magic setting. So you're not like cornering your players into having to use the same tactic over and over and over again to overcome magical resistance, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, magical resistance, that's one of the, that's probably the only thing in the game that really forces you to go to a high magic setting, right? That's probably, I mean, a lot of the, the character abilities have that, but, you know, the characters are extraordinary. They are heroes. They are uh, not normal for the world. Do yeah, you so the ever... heroes can be high character, high magic. Doesn't mean the setting and the world around them need to be. Do you ever uh, ban classes in the in the or or at least restrict class options in the vein of keeping a low magic setting? Like, do you prevent people from picking all spellcasters in the vein of keeping the low magic setting alive? No, 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 not at all. Uh I, I let them again I let them play whatever they want. They're they're the heroes. They're extraordinary. It's more like uh the world around them. They have to understand that they don't have access to a master wizard who can teach them things. Or if they do, it's all the way uh across the realm and there's several gates that have to get through in order to access that. And well we're talking about hard magic or not hard magic, we're talking about low and high magical settings, but what about hard and soft magical systems? Do you feel that one is is more beneficial to the other when it comes to uh, these kind of settings? Because a hard magic system, by the way, just for the audience, a hard magic system is a magic system that has a ton of rules that are clearly laid out for the audience. A uh, soft magic system is more general kind of mystical magic, think Gandalf and Lord of the Rings. So which one do you think, which one do you often use in your setting? I... But by those definitions, I definitely use a soft magic system. My world is imbued with magical thinking or mystical thinking. I have a a wonderful, wonderful video on this. Uh, You should watch it on my channel. It'll it'll blow your mind. I guess the the main premise is that in our world, we are very used to things following a logic and a reasoning behind them. We are used to a scientific absolutist mindset, but that's not the way things work for most of human history. And that's not the way the stories and mythology that these games are based on. Their authors, that's not how they looked at the world. They have uh, what's this view called uh, mystical thinking or magical thinking. And it's how about, here, here's the, here's the example that I give, right? Um, we know that disease spreads throughout people, right? That uh, if you're around somebody who is sick, uh, use two will start acting sick, right? It will ch- if someone gets a fever, they can start like having delusions. And if you're around them, you too can start having delusions. And then if other people are around you, they can start having those problems too. They can start coughing. They can start aching. They cannot feel like they're quite feeling themselves, right? We also know that anger spreads among people, right? Mm-hmm. That it, if it infects me, it causes me to start acting differently, not to feel right. My jaw will get all tense. My heart starts pounding fast. What's the real difference between sickness and anger then? It both affects you physiologically. It both spreads among people. It can have uh, crushing effects on populations. Fundamentally, if we're having a world with magic in it, should there be any real difference? Are they both not caused by demons? Right. So basically keep the magic to a mysterious, mystical level. Keep that mystery to it so that your party can wonder. It's more than that. It's uh, abandoning this idea that our real world laws of physics and our real world scientific explanations have any merit. Mm. And moreover, having uh, emotional and mystical and symbolic explanations has stronger world building, right? Do your rivers go uh, up and down because that's the way topology works? Or do your rivers go up and down because that's where, or do your rivers flow east to west because that's where a huge 
gush of water elementals decide to spawn from the plane of water. Oh yeah, that that I like. Right. That I like a lot. Are those mountain ranges or are they huge tectonic plates slamming into each other, or is it the spine of a buried dragon? Mm. So yeah, so yeah, keeping yeah, keeping getting rid of like our our current day explanations for stuff, and then using the mythology in Dungeons and Dragons to explain things instead. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's you, the whole idea of mystical thinking. How did you use that when you were uh, kind of producing and writing for uh, your your book? So I think, again, it goes back to focusing on the story. Having a, a narrative reason for why things are happening is a, is a lot more useful, right? Um, a lot of the times when people were submitting stuff to the book, they wanted, it's this one subclass, but it has all these other classes' abilities to it. It's the fighter subclass that gets all the ranger features. It's the wizard subclass that gets all the monk features, uh, whatever, right? And that's not, those are just mashing mechanics together. That's not telling a story. Might as well just multi-class. Exactly, exactly. Multi-classing exists in the game for a reason. So if we could think of, okay, what are some uh, what are some other explanations for how these things could come to be, right? Not a sorcerer who is also you are a sorcerer whose ancestors uh, were actually an archmage, and then the members like echoing down through the generations. That's how you have these types of abilities. Something like that. So once you have that, that focus on story, I think uh, once you have a strong idea of what story you're trying to tell through the mechanics, here's the, the something that I do is you write pseudo rules, right? It's uh, just really, really quickly get some ideas on paper, right? Don't worry about getting nice mechanical language. Just write a pseudo text that'll say what this feature is supposed to do, what this feature is trying to achieve in the fiction. Like when you use this feature, you were gonna guard your foe. Oh, you're going to guard your ally from your foe. Or when you use this feature, you're going to be able to control an area around you and make fire shoot out of the ground. Something like that. Trying to really write down what you're trying to achieve with that particular feature at those particular levels. Right. Like one thing that I love to do in character creation is have the players tell me, hey, like, what do you want out of this character? And then from there, grab the mechanics for that. So it's sort of similar, but a bit more freeform. Like you want to have fire shoot up when you protect your ally. So you come up with that idea and then you develop the mechanics around it after you come up with that idea and after you come up with the story that builds that idea. Yes, exactly. So right here, like make sure the mechanics and the effects of the element reflect the story you're trying to tell. I will go ahead and link you this document you can put in the description. Uh, just to give like a good idea of what I'm trying to do here. And then once you have that, that pseudo text down, that those pseudo rules, then you go through and you find 5e game texts that use similar effects what you're trying to create. Someone has already done the lifting for you. Someone has already wrote out good rules that are going to be logical and do the thing you want to do. They are going to parse with the system so you not have a bunch of loose hangers and things like that. So when you're trying to balance out what you've created for your homebrew, like you've gone from story to idea to concept to mechanic, when you're comparing it to what's already been created, like what's your favorite gauge to figure out if this is balanced or not? Is it, I mean, aside from the DM's guide, do you use anyone else's homebrew, like Griffin's Saddlebag or the things on Unearthed Arcana? No, the, uh, here is the only thing for, for balance, right? Balance is the absolutely last thing I do. 
because balance is uh, it's sort of weird and it's sort of illusory, right? At least part of balance is you have to appeal to people who just read the read the document, right? Like looking at the paper, reading it, and imagining how that would play is a legitimate part of the hobby. That's a real way to engage with uh, with role playing games, and so you have to respect those theory crafters. But at the same time, it is a game, right? And so you can't really be sure if something is balanced, is fun until you actually play it. Uh, so that's something to keep in the back of your head when we're talking about balance. But if we're talking about how do we do this, so there's uh, there's two things that I do. Each class has uh, has 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 a core, right? The idealized form and the archetype. They're the ones that are available for free on. Uh, the SRD and on D&D Beyond, right? The champion fighter, the evoker wizard, uh, right? Yeah. And so when you're making subclasses, you want to match your features to those features, right? Compared to a power. Like the evoker wizard, like your first level feature has to be roughly equivalent to that second level evoker feature. Your third level fighter feature has to be roughly equivalent to power to that third feature. Pretty obvious, right? Yeah. How do you actually compare balance? So... In the Dungeon Master's Guide, there is this table called Spell Damage Per Spell Level. And that is the secret, right? That is the absolute key that unlocks balance for the entire game. Wait, that exists? Uh, Wait, what? That's been there the whole time? Yes. Is it just in the back? It's in the Creating Your uh, Spell section. Are you kidding me? Oh my god. Oh my god. I've been oh, no, looking no, no, through... Oh, no, better. Buckle up, right? Because now I'm really going to blow your mind. All right, I'm, I'm waiting. Okay, so what that does is it tells you how many D10s are worth each spell level and damage, right? Mm-hmm. More than that, you can compare spell levels now. So you know that something that makes a single creature invisible is worth the same as 3D10 damage. That's neat. You can convert every power in the game into spell level dice and then use that as sort of like a currency when you're buying features for your subclasses. When I was creating, uh, I created two subclasses for my game because my players wanted something pretty unique. Mm-hmm. I would meticulously look through like the entire spell book and a bunch of classes just to compare them, just to make sure I wasn't mm-hmm. making anything too crazy. And obviously working with the player at the same time. But yeah, if I knew that that table was there, that would have made my life way <laughs> easier. Yeah. So there you go. And that's how you can, uh, that's how you can sort of get a semblance for how powerful something should be, right? So you know, okay, the Eldritch Knight getting uh, two first level spells is the same thing as being able to crit X many times per day because mm. they're both those third level features. So there you go. Neat. Yeah. So when you're creating your own homebrew, again, we'll go back to what you've made. Uh, do you have anything that you're just really proud of, like an idea that you came up with or a mechanic that you developed that just made you go, yes, this, this is awesome? Uh, well, I think that's, the, that's my favorite part of Galder's right here is that unlike most, you know, when people push stuff on the DMG, on the Dungeon Master's Guild uh, or on Drive for Life PG, a lot of it's just splat material, right? Like this is a new subclass. This is a new class. This is a new race. What Galdras does is we expand the rules. We gave you seven new conditions, right? Your character can become dulled. They can become doomed. Uh, they can become burned, things like that. And we also came up with the uh, the new actions that the character can do. There's a sunder action if you want to destroy someone's equipment. There's a hairy action if you want to stop them from attacking or doing something. And so really building those, uh, those big elements, expanding the core of the game, allowed us a whole lot of new room 
to play with when we were building these uh, these subclasses and races. And that was really, really cool. So how did you develop the ideas for these new conditions? Because conditions is not something a lot of people think about when they're thinking, okay, I'm going to change D&D. Like conditions is one of the last things. Like they're thinking classes, races, new monsters, but conditions are obviously really important to the game. How did you come up with all of these new mechanics that you could introduce to the core of D&D? Well, my channel is all about pushing the pushing the boundaries of the game, right? Figuring out, okay, this is what everyone else is doing. What's left behind? What is left to, to hack and do something else? How can we how can we expand further than what's already done? And I think having that mindset of, okay, if this is what everyone else is doing, I'm not gonna do that, forces you to be more creative. It forces you to be innovative. So again, like what kind of mechanic do you really wish Dungeons and Dragons, the base game had? Like obviously we have homebrew and of course they're probably working it on sixth edition at some point. When that comes out, is there something that you really hope that it includes in the official game? Maybe something from Galders or something else that you've developed? Oh, so something to, to really be added in there that's not. Um, that's, a, that, that, that's a good question. And I'm not, I'm not sure how to answer that because there's things that in previous editions that I liked, right? And there's reasons that I know that I got taken away. Like everyone uh, is sore about crafting rules, right? Mm. Oh, like all the players want, oh, I want to learn how to make armor. I want to make weapons. I want to make magic items. But as a DM, I'm like, no, that's a lot of work for me. That's a lot, man. Uh, yeah, the way that's set up is you just trade gold for items. Yeah, cool, perfect. That's a load off my shoulders. And so the problem is if you make something like that core and the players expect that, and then you're adding a new burden onto the DM. Obviously right? it's great for players, but yeah, as a DM, yeah. like that is a lot to handle, make custom items and new armors for all your players. And so really it's a sort of a, a double-edged question, right? Like what do I want to add for Dungeons and Dragons? Are you talking about like me as a consumer or me as a fan of the brand, right? Because mm -hmm. as a fan of the brand, I want the brand to succeed. And for the brand to succeed, you need to create new DMs, which means you need to make the on-ramp to being a DM as easy as possible, which means no crafting rules. Yeah. But as a player, crafting sick. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna etch some armor, yo. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> if you want, I could give you my answer and then maybe give you some time to parse it over. Yeah, go ahead. What's uh? What do you want? If I had to add one thing, man, more difficult resurrection mechanics. I just released a video about this, but I really like the homebrew resurrection mechanics that a lot of people like. Matt Mercer has a great one, the resurrection rituals to make resurrections more difficult. Because I think, especially in the late game, and if you have a cleric, even in the early mm -hmm. mid game, death is really really meaningless depending on the dm and depending on the magic level of your setting but especially in base dungeon dragons death doesn't mean much my players uh, they however freak out about death because i introduced a resurrection ritual that results in them needing to make multiple high skill checks in order to bring a player back now to be fair i clearly am not being that hard on them they've never failed a resurrection ritual they've always been able to make get it done and to get the player back to life but it still adds that kind of tension, and I think that that's really valuable for a game of Dungeons & Dragons, and something that we need, because base game, you just cast Revivify, spend 300 gold, and depending on your DM, 300 gold could be really easy to come by, and then your uh, player's back to life. Yeah, 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 that's definitely something that, uh, 
that I sort of a uh, homebrew around, right? Mm. And I did it. I've done it in two different ways. I've actually changed how I did it throughout the game. I used to up level the resurrection spells, right? Like Levivify used to be a fifth level spell. Uh, Raised Dead used to be a seventh level spell. Um, but now what I've done is you there are no diamonds, right? You think anyone could just you think someone's going to give That's away a, a five hundred yeah. gold piece diamond? This can save grandma. You think I'm just going to give it to you? Exactly. Uh, That's good. They're not normal diamonds. They're made from the fossilized remains of phoenixes. That's cool. Yeah, like they turn to ash and they all the carbon. I might steal that. I like that solution a lot. Yeah. So that's uh, that's what I do. So I guess if we're going to add something core to the game for everybody to use, right, that I think would be uh, really, really accessible. Um, I, I would think I would add uh, some sort of role play mechanic in there or some sort of uh, some sort of some sort of like story building mechanic. Cause right now, although the social interaction rules are extremely light, right? And they're that way just because you don't want to constrain the way someone needs to act, right? If you're having like a really good RP scene, you don't want a player to jump in and saying, but actually, or and you don't want to give the DM the excuse like to hide behind the rules. Like, well, I don't care how well you negotiated. This guy's uh, liking of you is only a six. He needs to be a nine right now. So he's mm-hmm. not gonna give you what you want. Yes, definitely. But I would like something that gives it just a bit, uh, a deeper touch, right? I think the way inspiration is handled is just a little too, not clunky, but a little too soft, right? Like, uh, like how do they bond, inspire? Yeah, yeah. If you, if you do it, if you fulfill your bond, you just get an extra D20 every once in a while. And I don't think that's quite enough. I would like to see something, uh, I would like to see a mechanic that more strongly urges players to follow their traits, bonds, and flaws. Absolutely. I, I like that a lot. Um, do you... Do you think a D a lot of people really are really harping for a D and D sixth edition? Well, maybe not a lot, but enough people that I've noticed. Do you think that that is wholly necessary right now, or are you happy with the position that fifth edition has in the current climate of TTRPGs? Because fifth edition has had a pretty big effect on TTRPGs in general. A lot of people play D and D fifth edition, whether it's because of Critical Role or because this is the edition that exists while Stranger Things is out. Uh, so, do you are you happy with the position that fifth edition is in at this moment? Yeah, absolutely. I think people are. Uh, harping on it or saying they want a sixth edition or something like that because they're just you know maybe getting a little bored right they mm-hmm. are super fans and they're starting to see uh, the, sort of the paint chipping off right and you know i'm not going to say that's an invalid position but i think people maybe take that a bit too far right they are forgetting the massive massive success that hasbro has on their hands they have a money-making machine oh, and why yeah. would they rip that apart right like uh and luckily what they did was uh, they made fifth edition flexible enough that it's easy to put on your own modules for complexity. Uh, you can add things on top of the game to make it more and more complex pretty easily without upsetting the the, the core system. the the thoroughfare the the through line of fifth edition is light enough that you can add lots of different game modules on top of it without completely wrecking your game. Mm. So you could add strongholds on top of it. You can add those crafting rules. You can add called shots. And you're not going to upset the game too, 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 too much because the 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 core system is light enough. Right. Like, And also, you don't need to just add new mechanics. A lot of people really love playing um, editions like 3.5e. I mean, I don't see why you couldn't take mechanics from older editions and implement them. Like Matthew Colville, we brought him up earlier, but he has an entire video on using 4e mechanics to make 5e combat more interesting. Yeah, yeah. And that's... Uh... 
what people see as a flaw, the sort of simplicity of fifth edition is actually a feature. Oh yeah. It's done that way on purpose. So us as DMs, because every here's another little insight here that every DM is a power user of the system. Every single one. They expect us to tinker with it. So they gave us a tool that can withstand our tinkering. Right. And also, I mean, it is just much easier for players to wrap their hand their hand their head around a lot of the more simplified mechanics of of fifth edition i mean things like disadvantage and advantage are really easy to explain in as opposed to um, all the conditions that could subtract or add to a dice roll so i also think that that is a major benefit yeah so i think what is likely going to happen is any 5.5 which is what tasha's is by the way or any sixth edition is going to be uh, retroactive it's going to be able to work with the all the material before the player's handbook to whatever next you know thing they poured out is going to work with fifth edition as we know it because they already have a large player base who knows these rules they're familiar why would they upset that all right yeah definitely so we are reaching the end point here and we've discussed mm-hmm. and talked about a lot of topics uh, do you have any sort of f- final advice that you want to give? Like if someone were to ask you, what is the most p- important piece of advice that you can give for homebrewing a D&D mechanic or a setting, what would you tell them? It could just be one of your most important piece of advice. It doesn't have to be the most. I know that could be a little hard. Mm, I don't know. I think the, uh, I think the most important thing is to just to do it, right? Is to just uh, just start and get stuff out there, right? Um, and then once you get it out there, once you, once you start, right, uh, take the time to focus on the little details because people who pick apart homebrew online, that's what they, that's what they get their rocks off on. They love finding grammatical errors. They love finding things that should be bolded that are instead italicized. They love being wrong about capitalizations. So if you pay a lot of attention to those sorts of details, you'll actually not only become a better designer because you'll learn new things about the game. But you're going to take away all those excuses people have and force them to engage with your actual content and your actual ideas. Thank you so much uh, for coming on to the show, Zipperian Disney. Thank you so much again. Uh, if you guys enjoyed this episode of Roll for Insights, then please do leave a like. If you want to see more content from me or from my guests, then please do subscribe to our channels. Links are somewhere. They're in the they're in the cards. It's in the description. It's somewhere in the in the void of YouTube. And finally, to appease the algorithm gods, please do go down to the comments down below if you are able. In essence, like comment, subscribe. We will both see you all next time. And without further ado, farewell. farewell.